in a world full of dead pundits. Three people surrounded by haters on all sides. Make their way in a sea of think tanks and pro interventionists. Or had their nightmare just begun? I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. The Syria A team. The Final Reckoning. Welcome everybody to this final installment, part three of the Syria A-Team. I'm excited to bring it to you, but I'm also kind of sad that it's over. I've had a lot of fun. Uh, with this week's series. I think you all can kind of tell that by now. I hope you enjoyed the trailers and all that stuff as much as I enjoyed making it. I really geeked out on that, and uh, I think uh, it was worth the time. This is part three of my three-part series uh, called The Syria A-Team, my interview with Ben Norton and Rania Kalik. Uh, most of you by now have heard the preceding two parts, so we'll skip straight to... Uh, we'll get to it, yeah. Uh, a quick... A quick preface, however, you will notice in this show we go all the way in. We go hard. We talk a lot of trash on socialist organizations. But I want to say one thing really quickly, okay? Although we do talk a little trash on DSA and ISO in terms of their Syria analysis, I want to be want to make one thing really clear. First of all, I love DSA. Uh, a lot of our members, uh, folks, fans of the show and so on and so forth, are members of DSA. Um... A lot of my guests are members of DSA, and so I don't mean to besmirch them in any sense. However, I think their Syria official Syria stance is garbage, and we're going to tell you why. Uh, although I will say a lot of fans of the show have been getting a lot of positive feedback from DSA members about the first two parts, and so that has to, that tells me that there is uh, this is a not not completely a decided matter uh, within the organization. And I know it's a big tent organization, and so they don't always take stances in the way that we would like them to. But uh, maybe this will help settle things one way or the other in any case. Additionally, I may talk miles of trash on socialist organizations, but I also fully recognize that in this political moment, in our era, the most important thing we can do is create new socialists. So to whatever extent people are out there doing that, creating new socialists, I applaud you. But we're also going to talk a little trash in the meantime. Yeah. Whatever. If you can't handle it, grow a thicker skin. It's a tough world out there. Yeah. All right, moving on. One last thing. Um, I need your help. Uh, I know there are a lot of excellent podcasts out there. Those podcasts have massive platforms. For example, like the excellent shows hosted by Jacobin Magazine and so on. I listen to many of those myself. I think here at the Dead Pundit Society, we stack up to those shows. I know for sure the guests that I have on the show are spitting fire on a weekly basis, but I need your help to try to expand our audience. Uh, I'm just an independent show. I need all the help I can get. So if you're on Facebook, look me up. 
uh, Dead Pundit Society. Go ahead and like the page. If you get a chance, uh, you know, share our material. I'd really appreciate that. Give us a share. Tell your friends. If you're on Twitter, first things first, never stop posting. But while you're posting, go ahead and look me up. I'm at Dead Pundits. At Dead Pundits. That's plural pundits. Give me a follow. Retweet uh, the episodes so everybody can see them out there. I just need your help building an audience. It's harder than you think to get the product out to the people. And I know we got a good product. It's worth hearing. Thanks for your support uh, up to now. It really means a lot. The show's growing and it's exciting stuff. So without further ado, here's the remainder of my interview with Penn Norton and Ron McCallick. Enjoy. We're gonna go all in right now, okay? You guys ready? You guys ready to go hard? Yeah. Suck down that monster energy drinks or coffee or whatever you got going. Um, I'm gonna start snort, doing push-ups. Sn- do some push-ups. Snort a line of like fire ants, you know, off the sidewalk because <laughs> uh, it's time to go in. So, ah, how do I start this? So today and, and yesterday we saw a, a whole swath of statements coming out from political organizations uh, across the U.S. Uh, most, many of whom we really love and admire and adore, which is why this is so gut-wrenching to talk about and infuriating in some senses. So I'm going to start with the good guys. Uh, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, friends of this show, certainly many of our listeners will either be members or very sympathetic uh, or in the, the, the outer circle per se. But they, uh, DSA recently put out a statement on U.S. action against Syria that has just has all of the marks of just bad analysis on this and i really we really want to get into this so i don't know what what do you think who wants to go first everyone is making me so mad (laughs) ranya is mad she's mad on the internet i'm mad on the internet and i'm not gonna stop until everyone agrees with me i am so sick like okay look i'm gonna be i'm gonna be straight with you guys go in go i have tried to be patient and tolerant of the fact that people just don't know what's happening in Syria. But at this point, there's really no excuse for being a self-described socialist, leftist, Marxist, whatever, and um, and, and, re- and really, like, repeating the talking points of the State Department. And neocons. And neocons. And neocons. There is no excuse for that shit. What, because you don't want to be called mean names? Can you imagine if everybody during the Iraq war protests was like, was like so concerned with being called a Saddamist because they avoid overthrowing a regime um, yeah. like by arrogant outside though. powers? You Saddam apologist. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure then that did happen. Like Christopher Hitchens would say that shit. But like... It didn't subdue but legitimate the left. Leftists, but legitimate leftists would say, fuck you, Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, right? exactly. With Syria, uh, they were only like, it's like, I just cannot understand why it is that everybody, and you guys know this stuff better than I do, because I don't know a lot about the sectarianism and factionalism on the left. But it seems to me to be coming from like the ISO talking points, which are basically that like the rebels are great, even if they're bad. The Assad regime is uniquely evil and he has a special bloodlust for like sucking the blood out of babies. Um, and 
And which, by the way, I find to be a bit Orientalist because, like, I don't, they don't talk about any other regime that way. I mean, like, and I'm not, again, that's not me defending the Syrian government. I just really. And they're all bad. No, it's not. They're all bad. It's so neocon to me. Yeah, but it's also very neocon to me because this is how they always talk about, you only hear this rhetoric towards, like, African dictators and Arab dictators. Exactly. You never hear it about anybody else. And they're always so uniquely evil. So, I mean, we talk Saudi Arabia is an easy target. Let's talk about Jordan yeah. for one second. Sure. Sorry to cut you off. But that's because, you know, uh, Trump just had a meeting with King Abdullah from Jordan. And all these liberal pundits were like, they commented much more on the fact that he had a British accent. They were all like, oh, King Abdullah has such a good accent. He speaks English better than Trump. They're making all these stupid comments. No one acknowledged the fact that Jordan, like Syria, is a repressive police state with no political opposition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unlike Syria, Syria is at least a republic. Jordan is a monarchy in which the Muqabarat are known for torture just as much as they are in Syria. The Muqabarat in in Jordan are very feared, and people are afraid of exercising basic political speech because they don't want to be tortured by the CIA-trained secret police in in their U.S. allied country. Exactly. No, exactly. Like it's so it's basically like you have people on the left adopting the same rhetoric that you get from the State Department, which is which is brown and black dictators that don't do as we tell them are uniquely evil and like literally just love eating babies. <laughs> Let's talk about the Saudi regime. Let's talk about what the Saudis are up to, uh, you know, beheading peaceful LGBTQ, dissidents, beheading peaceful yeah, dissidents. On January 2nd of last year, they beheaded nearly 50 people on the same day immediately, including Sheikh Namur Namur, who is a well-known Shia yeah. dissident in the country whose uh, nephew has also been on death row for peaceful protesting. These are, this is a country that executes people in the street by beheading. So, so, so what this tells us is we need to fire more cruise missiles, right? Isn't that, isn't that what we should do then? Because right. if you take the leftist logic, if you take the leftist logic, the anti-war quote unquote leftist logic, well, we need to, we need to overthrow all of these. Well, here's, people, here's so. the thing. Here's the thing. They play this, like, like you get these, this is the sort of ISO game that they like to play where they're like, we oppose American intervention, but they're absolutely right about like the Syrian regime being uniquely evil. And we should be supportive in our rhetoric towards the rebels because they're fighting a righteous fight. And if you dare question their righteous fight, then you're an Assadist and you're – and especially, by the way, if you're brown and you question um, the rebels and their righteous fight, then you're a tanky. They love saying that about people of color who question their narrative. They love calling them all tankies and Well, they glorify tankies today. I mean, you look at these people talk about Paul Robeson, for instance, today. It's (laughs) like about the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers were walking around with the Red Book. And they're like, oh, (laughs) we... we," But now, 50 years, they can whitewash their legacy. And they can... People they would have excoriated as Stalinists and tankies in their day, they now have tried to rehabilitate and used for their own particular... Yeah, like sell their bull... Like sell their magazine. Like, I am so... I've held it in for so long, but I don't even care anymore. Jacobin is a fucking disgrace on Syria. Like, a disgrace. They should be ashamed of themselves, the people who are deciding to publish the bullshit that they're publishing. Two of the women that they published about Aleppo a couple months ago are the most anti-leftist people I can think of when it comes to oh, Syria they stuff. Leftists. They literally they said that. They say that in their leftists. tweets. They say, I hate leftists. I hate feminists. I hate secularism. And like a Marxist, like why is a Marxist magazine publishing these people? And like, I, I just, I like, I, there's people at Jacobin I really love. They're my friends. And I, 
And like, but I just, I'm sorry. This is unacceptable. This Somebody Syria, hold her back. no, but like hold Syria has been destroyed. <laughs> like I, and I, you know, again, like it's like the personal stake for me. I keep being accused of like using my relatives to score political points. Fuck you. How dare you be a minority from a group, uh, from a region? Fuck you. Well, you, you know what? You call genocided. me when your relatives, you? you call me when your relatives are surrounded by U.S. armed Al Qaeda and tell me that, you know, like, and tell me that again. Like, fuck you. Sorry, I care about the well being of my relatives. Like, <laughs> and if I can interject a point really quickly here, because Rania mentioned one of, there was, so there was an interview that was published by, uh, we'll name names here, Rama Kudaimi, who's uh, an, an anti anti war. Uh, a sensible <laughs> leftist uh, in DC uh, yes. who um, also did similar things about the destruction of Libya and it's interesting to see all these same people who helped NATO destroy Libya which is a failed state again Gaddafi was like Assad he was repressive corrupt say what you will uh, the Libyan government was the most stable, one of the most stable in the region. They provided ba- basic health care and education for all their citizens. They had high gender equality. Now this is a failed state where parts of the country are under the control of ISIS and al-Qaeda. Um, the same people who helped destroy Libya are doing the same thing for Syria. Uh, Rama and many others. But Rama published this article, also an interview with uh, Razan Ghazawi. And uh, Ghazawi, who goes by the name Red Razan, is often cited by uh, ostensible Western leftists who are anti-anti-war when it comes to Syria. And uh, Razan Ghazawi actually fled to Sweden in, in 2000, uh, 2012. And again, I don't want to in any way downplay the things that she went through. There's no question that she went through horrible experiences. Uh, she was arrested. I mean, this is a war. Wars are horrific, which is why we should be anti-war which is not support wars when it's against this evil cartoon dictator. But uh, we should ask ourselves, okay, we have all these people living in exile telling us that we should support the Syrian revolution. Well, if the revolution is so benevolent, why are they in exile? Why are they living in Sweden? Why are they living in New York? Why are they living in Germany? Why aren't they in liberated territory? And they're not in liberated territory, because, especially for women, because these are oppressive Al-Qaeda-like, even if they're not controlled by Al-Qaeda, they're controlled by hardline Salafi groups that have ethnically cleansed uh, minority groups from the region that, that subjugate women. I mean, I can name some other people, but perhaps I shouldn't name them, but no, let's say I, I, I have a former that. friend I have a former friend who is Shia and she constantly, she goes in media and she talks about the need to support the Syrian revolution who fled the country because she's Shia and because she's a woman. And it's like, <laughs> holy shit. It's like, wait, do you understand what's going on here? Well, this I'll is- tell you what, I'll tell you what that's about. I'll tell you though. People, people are making money. Mu- people are making money. Like, you know how much these, you know how much money has gone into this shit? Like, oh my God, I could do it tomorrow. I could see the light and do it tomorrow and get like an instant job if I just got on the Saudi train. Like if I just got on the pro-Saudi train, I would be made instead of having to like fundraise for my journalism. But let's talk about Al Jazeera too. I mean, Al Jazeera has a lot of money and it's cuttery. That's why they have so much money. That's why the people can make money writing for this outlet, which does some good journalism, but on Syria is horrible. Well, that's the whole point is so that it legitimizes their journalism on the issues that they suck on. They have good journalism on other issues so that Al Jazeera seems like a really great outlet and on some issues it is. But then everybody thinks that it's also respectable and it's Middle East reporting and it's Middle East reporting is abysmal. Right. They have they take progressive stances on U.S. domestic issues. And then, of course, they're incredibly uh, reactionary on, on the Middle East. So let's I'm going to make a new rule here. So people who, who are uh, watch Bill Maher, that, that uh, reactionary <laughs> asshole, speaking of which. <laughs> He has a segment where he calls, 
Yeah, Cruz Mr. Liberal. He calls uh, new rules. Uh, and so I'm going to make a new rule on this show if you guys will stand by this. Um, if, you, if you stoke war in Syria or any other country, you have to live there during the U.S. <laughs> intervention. Yes. And you cannot leave afterwards, no matter how fucked up shit gets afterwards. So if you <laughs> Iraqi, if you're an Iraqi dissident in 2002, 2003, in the lead up to the war, and you are advocating for the U.S. intervention to overthrow Saddam, then you, ha- you, you have to live there during the incursion and then after after you know, afterwards when things devolve into the sectarian hellscape. Same with Libya, and now the same with well, Syria. Well, you know, I want to say one thing. So let's play that That's, game. Let's no, see if Rama. Great, but... Let's see if Rama or Ben's uh, Shia friend wants to go back to Syria right now, and then live through the go live in Idlib, and then, yeah, and then go live in Idlib and hang out and see how good life is. And before they so, just say, "Oh, there's all these Western leftists who are telling us," I'll say, "I know." Like I mentioned, um, I an Arab woman here who always gets called yeah. like. Apparently, I'm a white man. By the way, I've been like stripped of my identity. <laughs> Because well, I don't have the right opinion. Exactly. Congrats. Well, I'll say I know, but I even know we, we often, you know, elevate the voices of Syrian exiles living in the West who, who uh, you know, say particular things that are supportive of the State Department narrative. There are Syrians and, you know, like, of course, um, uh, you know, Rania's family, she has Syrians in her family. But, you know, I know Syrians who live here in New York and in other places who absolutely oppose all of these this rhetoric and who are actually um, much more sympathetic to the government than I would be or other people. Um, and especially, I mean, I'll just name some people here. I mentioned I have a friend, Rashwan, who's from Swaida in the south, who uh, has, I mean, he's been through so many horrific things and has been through this war and he's has had f- friends and cousins who have been drafted into the army or killed by extremist groups. Um, I have a friend, Saad, uh, who was just at the protest the other night, the anti-war protest, who comes from a Christian group in Aleppo, um, Christian family in Aleppo. I mean, there are Syrians who have other views and there are no platform like Rania is. They're not allowed to speak. So then when then when people say, oh, why are you Western leftists um, speaking, you claiming to speak for Syrians? And it's like, well, yeah, that's because you silence all the Syrians who don't, you know, agree with your narrative. Yeah, I would know. I even have a story about a guy who, um, a friend of of mine his uh, uncle uh in, was like uh this is something that the zionist law like the the israel lobby does to people who are palestinian they did it to um to razma uh, to resmia ode um which is get her deported for bullshit and this is something that the syrian the the pro-regime change crowd has done to people in including my friend's uncle who's syrian who had started to speak out against what was happening and they immediately like tried to like they immediately told the fbi that he was he was uh, affiliated with like the syrian army and that he had to be investigated he might be affiliated with hezbollah and they were trying to get him deported like that is what happens to people who do raise their voice and so it's just a matter of power it's kind of like the regional dynamics of the middle east where the i mean there are a lot of syrian americans who are pro um, who like are anti-regime change and even pro-government in this country and they're like wealthy successful individuals but collectively they don't have the same amount of power as like the people who are muslim brotherhood ideologues um and former aristocrats from syria who were who left after the baathists took over and redistributed their land and if we're going to really name name things for one second um i'll just name one person because uh you know you hear all these people you know in the groups like the iso and they're like well listen to particular syrian voices and of course they always mean particular syrian voices who have lived in the west for a long time if they weren't born here who speak fluent english with an american accent who are from rich families who are going mm-hmm. to who are grad students and prestigious right. ivy league universities but i'll just say and again I, i'm not taking anything out personally it's just it, for me this is actually an interesting thing because 
I was very sectarian on this issue. I used to agree with the ISO line. I was deceived by the ISO line, and I was deceived by many of these people. And I, I realize how disingenuous many of them have been. And, and for me, it, so it's not personal. It's political, absolutely. But looking at how it's done, I, I have an intimate knowledge of it. And I'll just say as one example, and again, I'm, I'm not be, this, he's a great guy. He's a nice person. So I'm not anything, saying anything about him as a person. But if we're going to name some names, an interesting person is Nader Atasi. Nader Atasi comes from the mm. ex, the literal exiled ruling class of Syria. If you look up the Atasi family, they have Wikipedia a Wikipedia article just about <laughs> the family, and they have individual Wikipedia articles about all the former Atasi head of heads of state before Baathism in Syria. So Nader Atasi wow. is an anarchist who lives here in New York, and he's constantly quoted for you know a progressive who supports the Syrian revolution, etc. What is never mentioned is that he and his family members, his cousins, etc., who are all outspoken activists, are are literally, they're not even just figuratively the exiled ruling class. They're the they actual are. ruling class of Syria who have been exiled. So it's, it's the same thing as the Ahmed Shalabis. Does Ahmed Shalabi, does he speak for the Iraqi people? Do Does does right. Reza Pahlavi, does he speak for the Iranian people? Like the exiled like monarch of Iran? Like whose voices are we talking about? People keep saying... It reminds me of uh, the, the slaveholders in Cuba yeah. who were yeah. celebrating, celebrating the Gusanos who are celebrating, right, they because all, uh, we, we normalize now. relations again. And they, they were pissed off at Castro because Castro took their slaves away. It's right? pretty, like, no, it's the same guys. thing. The, the Cubans in Miami that are so right-wing and they just, like, want to destroy their homeland because they want their shit back. They want their human labor back. Um, <laughs> it's very, very similar to that. And you see it in a lot of, I mean, we also, it's the same thing with Venezuela. Like, the Venezuelan voices that we want to elevate are these, like, right-wing uh, people who are just like the aristocrats who are like oh, Chavez took my land it's like that other people were working and I can't charge the money to 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 produce stuff for me anymore like so let's back let's let's move forward because what I, w- I want to push on some of their narratives here because a lot of these people will say well I'm not I'm not pro war I, I I condemn what Trump did wink wink nudge nudge but however these people as as I've heard a lot of people say rightly online is that like when you have been shouting at the top of your lungs we have to do something about this guy Assad right we have to do something about his atrocities and then trump does something and you denounce trump it, it seems it seems disingenuous they also spend all their time attacking the anti-war movement that's what this is about too is these people i mean look at the same time the iso how influential are they on u.s policy not influential at all they don't have that kind of power what they do They're have influential on the left well, exactly and what they've done on the left is they've made it they've attacked the anti-war movement they've turned the word anti-imperialism into a bad word it's a slur. Yes, yeah, it's now. A th- oh, you're an slur. anti-imperialist. Like it's like, yeah, well, yeah fuck yeah, I am. <laughs> like, when, was, yeah. when did that become a bad thing? And and, I'll, and also just to interject, just add, uh, you know, a disclaimer here, asterisk. I have comrades who are in the ISO, especially, I mean, I'm friends with people who are in the ISO, especially people who don't really follow foreign affairs in the Middle East. And the ISO's lines and other issues aren't necessarily bad. I mean, I think I disagree with some of their other lines. I think they're very bad in white supremacy, etc. But, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anyone who's affiliated with the ISO is horrible and is reactionary. But as an institution, as an organization, politically, mm-hmm. they have people who monopolize their policy on the Middle East 
who have reprehensible politics and who who have been doing this for years. It's not just Syria. It's also Libya. You can go Venezuela down the list. Venezuela, too. Venezuela, They're, Cuba. Cuba, Venezuela. I mean, this is – basically what it comes down to is you have some people who only support white – let's get down to it – white revolutions. They support the Bolshevik Revolution and then it's only until 1924. They support the French Revolution, but they oppose the Chinese Revolution. They oppose uh, the Venezuelan Revolution, the Cuban Revolution. They – you know, if it's – if it's in a brown country, sorry, you're out of luck. You're all Stalinists. Right. And let's talk about the, the, the real fundamental. And I, I was a former ISO member myself. I, used to be I need affiliated, to out myself yeah. there. And uh, so I come from these people. So I was, I was sort of indoctrinated in and that I'm still uh, friends some with years some ago. Yeah, sure. Still friends they with some that's people funny. In the they, ISO they maintain. And, that's funny that people maintain friendships with you because no one from the ISO talks to me anymore. Like the, they yeah, just like, well. like, like, like complete silence. I'm probably except getting to write, probably except to write fucked up shit now. about me, except to write fucked up shit about me and call <laughs> right. me an Assadist uh, on their stupid website. Right. Uh, so, but but their line, right? They have this. They have this very this abstract sort of global struggle model, right? And it's this like third campus, uh, neither campus as in third camp. Uh, neither Washington nor Moscow line, right? Where oh, we're we're on the side of the oppressed. Because what for them, anti-imperialism is a slander against those who, in their estimation, stood with Moscow against Western imperialism. <laughs> right? Which dare, I said that's not a, it's not true. You take money from it's Moscow, not, you right? Because if you movement that's being destroyed yeah. by the U.S., how dare you? Exactly, you said it yourself. I wasn't going to go into the history, but you just covered it. I mean. It's it's really it's really uh, it's really blind to a lot of intense and nuanced history there. But that's the ISO's thing. They have this like abstract framework, and they project it onto a situation. You find the oppressed, and then you're on the side of the oppressed. It sounds good, right? Who doesn't want to be on the side of the oppressed? But the question in Syria is that finding the good guys is not very easy. And I think we've just spent the last two hours talking about that, right? But let's not just pick on the International Socialist Organization here because our our friends, our dear, dear friends here at the Democratic Socialists of America put out a very similar statement. And they say, while we support the secular pro-democracy elements in the mass Syrian uprising against the brutal Assad regime, U.S. military power cannot liberate the Syrian people. Well, where the fuck are these secular pro-democratic elements in the mass Syrian uprising? What does that mean? What does that mean? Do we? Does that mean we? we, Should we be protesting the U.S. or not? Like, should we? Are are you telling us to go protest Russia? Like, no. It sounds good. What do they sound like? It tugs at the heartstrings. Yeah, and if I can, like, who doesn't want to be on the side of the oppressed? Well, and if I can interject for a second, yeah, I mean, it's also important to understand that what it's not just the ISO; it's some uniquely on these issues bad organization. It's part of a tendency. It's it's they're cliffites, right? They're, they're, they follow the, the tendency created by Tony Cliff, um, who is a member of the Socialist Workers' Party and uh, had particular views. You know, there are many uh, threads that tied everyone, every, all these groups together, even though there's a lot of sectarianism within this camp. Um, but they argued that the Soviet Union was a degenerated worker state. Um, and they had a split with the Shakmanites. And I mean, there are different tendencies, but looking at like the history of sectarianism on the left... You see these people where they essentially decided that uh, even if they say they don't side with imperialism, 
that in the in the name of fighting the boogeyman of Stalinism, and Stalinism is essentially any so, a, a, actually existing socialist movement in the global south. Um, that yeah, they have I've to noticed just, that they they're <laughs> all authoritarian, evil Stalinist dictatorships, and and everything about them is bad, and there's nothing redeemable. So we have to wash our hands from them, and we support socialism from below. I mean, this is part of the international socialist tendency which is an international Trotskyite group uh, founded or based on Cliff's ideas, the SWP right. in, the, in the UK, which is different from the SWP in the US. But the SWP in the UK really pioneered this. the this. Socialist Workers' and Party. And in the US, it's the ISO. So, I mean, um, it's, it's not just, although the ISO actually, like, um, it was expelled. So, I mean, there's, there's this complicated history. But... Right, it's difficult. But but the point is, like, it sounds good, right? Who doesn't want socialism from below? Who doesn't want to stand on the side of the oppressed? But in the case of foreign policy, it gets you into a lot of trouble. I would argue, actually, it gets you into a lot of trouble when you when you project that narrative onto domestic issues, but that's, that's for another episode, and that one's actually coming up very soon, so stay tuned for that. But um, when you project it onto these foreign policy situations with a lot of sort of, like, divergent and contradictory sort of characters involved, you just really get in trouble and i've seen this sort of like um very idealized narrative floating and i mean i just read that segment from the dsa statement and so it seems to me there isn't really much room between what the iso is saying right now and dsa uh, the largest socialist organization in the country right now so where does that where does well, that i think that us? means I mean, the iso do? has been incredibly influential on this issue and i mean look at this point i gotta say the iso is always complaining like the iso complains it's too white they're like, I don't know why people of color don't like us. And then, like, the DSA is having a similar problem with attracting people who, like, a more diverse crowd of people. And I've talked, like, I mean, I, I, the DSA I'm more sympathetic to because I have people in there that, I, that, like, are willing to listen to me um, and hear what I have to say. At the same time, they wonder, like, why do we have this white problem, you know? Maybe part of it is because you are literally, like, refusing to even hear people like me out on issues that affect people like me. I mean, I, if they're doing it to people like me on Syria, which I guess is maybe a unique case because everyone's scared, to be honest, about Syria. But I imagine they're having the same issue with other issues that affect people of color. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. And so oh, I'm yes. like, you guys, if you want to have a more diverse audience of people, if you want to have more diverse membership, perhaps you should maybe – I'm just it's just a, just a suggestion – maybe consider the fact that on certain things you don't know what the fuck you're talking about and you should maybe just maybe i don't know ask yourselves hey what are leftists in these situations saying and that's one thing i find so shocking and i've been really disgusted with especially from the iso is this condescension towards leftists in the arab region on Syria, and the world. they're all just a bunch of Stalinists and because the they, like all the communists, the Lebanese Communist Party, the PFLP, the, which is the Palestinian Communist Party, all of these leftist groups, they're all Stalinists and tankies because they support the Assad regime. When in fact, if they fucking opened up their ears and listened to these groups that are actually leftists in the region, they would ha they would hear what is a, a fairly rational um, logic to like how they see the situation, which is they support uh, they support the integrity of the Syrian state. They support keeping the Syrian state together. They oppose the collapse of the Syrian state and they impose the disintegration of that state at the hands of groups that are basically Al Qaeda and ISIS. That to me seems like a fair position and fairly leftist position to have. 
And you like it's these people have been repeatedly um classified as just Stalinist. I've heard these I've heard this condescension from these academics, especially in the ISO, saying this about the Arab the like the the gross Arab communists, the gross Arab leftists. And I find it really disturbing. I was indoctrinated in that uh, uh, ideology when I first joined up with the ISO in my younger years. And so, yeah, you're, you're spot on. I mean, that, that's that's exactly what you get. I was brought up to think that these people were just Stalinoid, uh, anti-democratic tyrants. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I, fortunately, I saw the light. And it was in large part to some people that I heard on podcasts and, and, and readings that I'd read elsewhere, probably much like Ben's experience was in terms of uh, shaking the rust off of his fucking eyelids to see the truth in Syria. Well, but it's also, it, it echoes, let's talk about the actual term of Orientalism, which is frequently what Ronnie and I get smeared as, oh, you're Orientalist, etc. But a lot of and this... Islamophobic now, A lot of way. this rhetoric, mm-hmm. a lot of this, and it's funny because Zionists say the exact opposite. The Zionists say that we're all uh, is, Islamophiles and we're uh, useful idiots for Islamists, etc. So, I mean, <laughs> if we're getting it for both sides, I guess we're doing something right. But, um, and honestly, let's be serious. I've been attacked probably, I've been attacked a lot by Islamophobes and Zionists, but I think at this point I've been attacked more by Syria regime change shills. So it just kind of demonstrates, I think, like, in many ways they're actually in similar camps. Hey, but. man, and, uh, the, the Zionists, I gotta say, the Zionists never made me so unemployable. <laughs> but, uh, on this point, though, it's very interesting because I, I, I touched this on this earlier, but it's so insidious to me seeing this, and I used to not recognize it. But And again, I don't want to just pick on the ISO because it's part of the Cliffite Trotskyite tendency. And I'm not saying all Trots are like this. There are some Trots which are, who are better, but there's this particular tendency of Trots. Uh, the Shackman, I mean, let, well, I'll just pick on the Cliffites in particular, um, and Shackman's different. Um, but, you know, these Cliffites who basically oppose every form of existing socialism in world history, they, they even, you know, for instance, in the Vietnam War, they would be like, oh, we support the Vietnamese Trotskyites, which is like 20 people. And they were like, Ho Chi Minh is a tool of Western imperialism while the U.S. is killing millions of Vietnamese. I mean, we're talking about insane ideologies here in mean, the Korean War. It and- takes a lot of work to square that circle, right? I mean, you have to. And so what they end up doing is they find somebody from the region. They find a Syrian or something like that. And they tokenize that person. They make them magical. Right. This is the same thing they do in black politics in America. Mm-hmm. They f- sort of find the magical uh, black person to to tokenize in order to you know to, in order to help them sort of square that circle uh, with their ideology that just doesn't map onto. Well, reality. and then thirty and forty years later, this is what's too, so insidious to me is they'll elevate some of these figures and whitewash their views and use them as resistance uh, symbols that they themselves wear. So a great example is Leila Khaled. I can't tell you how many events I've been to where people are wearing a shirt with Leila Khaled. For those who don't know. Leila Khaled was um, a female leader in the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary socialist group in Palestine who is committed to armed struggle against the Israeli occupation and the Israeli regime. And, uh, you know, she's known for uh, she would hijack planes in order to, to bring attention to the Palestinian plight. I mean, she actually probably was the most important person to put the Palestinian struggle on the map. And if you listen to her today, she's still alive. She's still with the PFLP and she's still releasing statements. And she'll, she's released statements saying, I mean, and I'm watering it down a little bit, but saying very um, passionately, we support the Syrian army and its fight against Saudi Arabia, Israel, etc. That doesn't mean that she's uncritically saying, she doesn't even mention the word Assad in her statement. She's saying, we support the Syrian state and do not want it to be destroyed by Saudi Arabia, etc. and by U.S. imperialism. But you listen to all these people 
people who who wear shirts of Leila Khaled and then talk about the evil Stalinist left well, they're literally ignoring and silencing the people <laughs> whose symbols and whose resistance struggles they're using f- to piggyback off of. The Black Panthers are another example. Yeah, you can, ventrilo- you can ventriloquize Fred Hampton because he's long dead. But it's almost like they're trying to ventriloquize somebody who's not dead yet, which is kind of aw- has an awkward result, yeah, it's doesn't like, it? These people should listen to Fred Hampton and, and Huey Newton and the Black Panther leaders and ideologues on the They're Soviet always happy to use them against identity politics, which I find interesting. Yeah. Like all these, like I, I, like I, I just, you know, and I would do that too. It's like because you know what Fred Hampton would say. You know, you don't beat white capitalism with black capitalism. You'll see them like use things like that. But like you said, yeah, they like wash away everything else they don't like about these people. I just find it really gross, and I find it really. um, I just feel insulted. Like I feel incredibly insulted that 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 people on the left are choosing to align themselves with Islamists, literally choosing to align themselves with Islamists who, like, hate me because I don't cover. Um, because I'm, the, right, like, right. I'm the Stalinist and they're the revolutionaries. I don't get it. So we, we, we have to wrap this up soon because I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, we're hitting the two-hour mark, but we've really spit some fire today. I want to just finish up five more minutes, maybe even less. A uh, really quick statement. There are two articles that came out on Jacobin today. One was written by Greg Shupak. It's fantastic. It's called Resisting the Bombing. There are no humanitarian wars. There are only wars. This is the anti-war position. And then there's another one that's more fishy, I think. Why being against Assad matters too by Bashir <laughs> Abu Mane. So um, quick comments on these two articles. I think, I mean, first, I just want to say personally that, you know, we, we've bashed Jacobin Magazine. Look, they're just an outlet. They publish articles. I think one place where they did fail here is that this is very clearly a debate. And I think that I think they the editorial team there probably should have framed these two articles as you know explicitly framed these two articles as representing two sides of a very heated and lively debate. And they didn't. They just kind of put them up on their website and said, "Okay, here they are." You know, and so one can be shared. At the, the, so the the second article, the Bashir Abu Mane article, has been shared like five or six times more than Greg Shupak's article. So it might lead people to believe like, oh, this is the Jacobin position on the war. And it's not, right? Shupak's article is just as uh, important. I, th- I think we think more accurate in, in many senses than the other one. And so I think that was a little bit, I don't know, it's a little bit disingenuous on their part. And I think Jacobin and, and the people on the left need to do better. What do you think? I think that you're, I think that I'm done being nice about it. Like, I think that this is like a very explicit thing. This is not because they're confused. It's because they have a shitty, either they have a shitty position or they don't want to upset people. Either way, it was once like this about Palestine. Um, and now, you know, people are pretty like on board with, okay, this is the situation on Palestine and Syria has become this third rail, rail issue now. And it's unacceptable. Like, look, the U.S. went to war against Syria. It just outsourced that war to Al Qaeda and ISIS. And Although that needs to be recognized. Billions, it spent billions and billions of dollars, which is never mentioned. The CIA has been involved for years. It's never right. No, exactly. That's what I mean. And so, because of that, people maybe don't see Syria as so much as a war against Syria because it wasn't U.S. troops that necessarily did it. But regardless, it's like completely unacceptable to me that there's been so much silence around this issue. And I mean that from everybody, even the people who work on the issue of Palestine who are too scared to say anything about Syria because they don't want to get clobbered by 
the like pro regime change crowd. I don't care anymore. Like given I, I've seen the devastation that this has caused and I've seen the war that this has prolonged and it is unacceptable. Like get your shit together and start caring because you like I, I just I don't get it. I really don't understand why it's okay to throw these people, to throw Syrians under the bus, to throw the millions of Syrians that still live in government areas under the bus. And for what? So that you can side with a bunch of like a bunch of Islamist assholes and and like people in exile who like don't have like who do just like are have sold out to side with the Ahmed Chalabis. Like, can you imagine that being the case that during the Iraq war? I can't. I really, really can't. So, so what is to be done? How, I mean, contrary to these people who who say, "Oh, we got to do something," and then Trump does something, we got to like, stop well, doing that. something. The U.S. has exactly. to stop doing something. U.S. out of the Middle East, period. That means all forms, even and there might be maybe the U.S. is doing one or two good things. Who knows? But maybe it's like supporting some NGO. No, U.S. out of the Middle East. End of story. Period. That means that that doesn't mean people are like, oh, are you going to support regime change in Saudi Arabia? No, the U.S. should stop propping up the Saudi regime. Fuck out of Saudi Arabia. Which will collapse tomorrow. The U.S. should stop supporting the (laughs) occupation of the Palestinian territories, which is entering its 50th year. End it immediately. Zippo, like out of the Middle East, period. Get your CIA bases out of Iraq. Get your like, seriously, I agree. Like Ben is absolutely right. Like get the fuck out of the region. You destroyed the region. Get out. That should be the position. Let people have some fucking sovereignty. Let them let them fix the problems there. We cannot do it. The U.S. cannot do it. You cannot even if the problems the U.S. created, the U.S. is not capable of having good intentions. It's just not. So let's be let's be clear. When when people say they are anti anti war, what they're against this anti war movement is is U.S. out of the Middle East. And so when they say no 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 not so fast, we're anti that. We're anti U.S. out of the Middle East because we believe that the the U.S. can can serve our interests in terms of deposing Assad. Well, to be fair, that's not what they say. They say they oppose U.S. intervention, but then they don't talk about U.S. intervention, and then they write it out of history. Right. Right, right, right. So I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm suggesting they're disingenuous, and I'm trying to read between the lines and, and, and tell people this is. Well, what I don't think they're secretly pro-U.S. They just, they, it's just not in the purview of how they understand what the conflict is, and they just write it out, right. and they, they. That's why they can't understand what's happening. I mean, but you know, in 2011, 2012, I live outside of Washington D.C., and I, there were rallies going on in front of the White House where where these FSA dis, uh, FSA partisans were waving free Syrian flags uh, in, a, in in American flags, trying to indicate that you know there's this like you know shared interest and that the U.S. should come in and back back well, yeah, the rebel- These aren't people who call themselves revolutionary socialists. That's that's what's so abysmal is you have people who call themselves revolutionaries who are doing this. Yeah, under the guise of, I mean, I just remember the first time um, that I, I remember I was at a socialism conference. I actually did not know much about the ISO. I like their domestic politics, um, that which sound pretty decent. I mean, there's some things I don't agree with, but like for the most part, they're on the right side. I wasn't aware, and they were good on Palestine, and that's what I went to talk about. I was not aware of their positions on all of these different countries because I'm again, I'm not really like well read in the factionalism on the left. Um. And I, there was like a, an hour block, you know, the socialism conferences, ISO conference every summer. And there was like an hour block where, um, I was like, oh, which, which, um, uh, lecture should I go to? And there was one on, you know, U.S. imperialism and anti-war movement. And I was like, okay, I'll go to this. And I go and I, I, I came like after it started and the guy who was talking was Ashley Smith. 
And um, he's just going on about how, like, he, first of all, he's going off about Phyllis Bennis, which was weird. Um, everybody in that room seemed to really dislike Phyllis Bennis. Like, they think she, like, destroyed the anti-war movement or something. I don't really get it. But the point is, is he was going on about how um, the people who don't support arming the rebels are all Stalinists. And I was like, what the fuck did I just walk into? What? Like, arming the Like, What? <laughs> And then, and it goes on, like it goes on. This was last summer, actually. This is the, this is last summer, last fucking yeah, summer. Yeah, like, it's like, I was ago. like, what this the is, so hell the, am the, I the hearing? Legitimate, the legitimate anti-war uh, message. This was like on anti-imperialism. We need to flood <laughs> arms. We need to flood arms into the region because that has historically worked. But like his point time, was weird. Right? It was like, he was saying this thing along the lines of like, the U.S. should get out, but also anybody who opposes the U.S. arming the rebels is a Stalinist. I was like, what is, he, what are you saying? And then he's going on, like, I mean, he was just going on and on about, you know, our Stalinists are either they're liberals. And I got, I was so confused. I started texting my friends who were also at this conference. And I was like, what is, like, what the hell is this guy's, like, talking about with Syria? And then I go and I ask a question, or during the question uh, session, and I was like, hey, um, I'm Arab. I have family in the region, in Syria, in fact. And I'm just curious, like, you know, my family has a lot of disagreements about Syria. There is no consensus in my family. As far as I know, there's no consensus among Arabs. Like Arabs are at each other's throats over this issue. So I'm curious, who is your constituency? <laughs> like, who are you talking about? Um, like, cause I, I, I don't understand like how you've come to this conclusion of this clear cut answer when even Arabs can't come to an agreement on it, you know? And, and like he didn't know what to say. He was like completely just like just flabbergasted. That place, that place is an echo chamber. The, those question and answer sessions. Well, everyone looked at me like I had like everyone discussion. looked at me like I had three heads. Like I was like yeah. uh, like like I was some weird creature. Like where who are you? Where did this That's person a rah, come from? That's a rah session. That's a rah rah session. Not to pick on them too much. Again, this is this is not just the ISO. The British right. SWP is like this too. In fact, the British SWP yeah. is about to have a Marxism conference, which they have every year as well, and they have similar panels planned on Syria. I mean, this is this is a problem of a particular tendency, and not to get too sectarian, but it's a particular tendency of Trotskyism, and it's mm-hmm. this this Trotskyite anti anti war politics that has been around for decades, and it's been incredibly destructive. Well, I mean, there's a reason that a lot of neocons are former Trotskyists. Just saying. I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> no, because there is a similarity in terms of like. A um, little bit. Well, there is a similarity in terms of like constant, you know, struggle and this well, like Hitchens, thing about. Hitchens is the textbook like, example. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's like this obsession yeah. with like, uh, you know, if you don't support this, then that makes you like pro dictator. Like, it's a very similar. Um, I can see how it could. I could see how it could easily build off of the tendency you're talking about, could easily transform into neoconservatism. I, I can see how that jump could be made. Both tendencies vilify the evil dictator. And then so one says, well, we shouldn't use direct imperialism to dethrone them. And the other one says we should. So right. it's, yeah, it's a slippery slope. I mean, it's very simple just to kind of glide into the S1. So, so much more to talk about here. We're over the two-hour mark. I just want to one last quick question. Bernie Sanders, <laughs> WTF, my friend. Bernie Bernie! Not surprising. Why? What are you doing, well, man? Somebody want to explain to us what Bernie's well, position someone, is and, and what it should I be. I mean, the thing about Sanders, and I'd like to hear Ronnie's response to this too. Um, at first, when Sanders started running, I was very skeptical. He was running as a Democrat. I knew he was a white social Democrat. He had those particular politics. He supported, um, you know, funding the war in Afghanistan. He supported the NATO war in Yugoslavia, which destroyed Yugoslavia. Um, so he was c- consistent on some things, domestic policy, 
but he, he was a social democrat. He's a European-style social democrat. And when it came mm-hmm. to issues like war and imperialism, he is weak and doesn't really know really what he's talking about. It's not something that concerns him. That Those are not his politics. So at first, I was pretty skeptical. But, but what excited me about the Sanders movement was precisely that. It was a movement. It was not just about Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. You had millions upon millions of people, especially young people, but not just young people, throughout the country who were politicized through this movement. They had never been exposed to anything to the left of the Hillary Clintons of the world. They thought politics was just this um, centrist game of corruption and you just pick whichever side, but they're all basically the same. And then they have someone who comes across who's an independent who's been fighting for left-wing ideas. Again, I, I'm, I have issues with Bernie Sanders up to the left of him, but he has been an independent fighting and he's been principled on domestic issues. Again, he's weak in empire, but domestic issues for many years. And you had all these people who were mobilized. And since then, we've also seen a lot of people who have stayed involved, who have become even more left-wing who are organizing and that's great i mean anytime especially when he was objectively resisting the democratic party i I, at that moment i supported him because he is on the side of progressive forces then when he began endorsing clinton it's much more complicated and and i was very critical and i've since been critical so it doesn't surprise me that now he releases this very weak statement uh, about Syria, and I mean, he, he he didn't really come out clearly against or for the bombing, but it was a very weak statement. But that doesn't surprise me. And when you look at his consistency on other issues, um, you know, like I mentioned, the bombing of NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, this isn't really a new thing. But it, again, it, Bernie is not the only reason he's important in my mind is because of the movement around him. And at the end of the day, I'm not really super concerned with him as a figure. I'm more concerned um, about all the millions of people who have been mobilized and are organizing now, thanks to all his problems aside, the movement he helped inspire. Right. This is, in essence, why I'm so concerned about DSA's uh, statement. I want to be clear. Um, I love I, I love DSA. We've had people, uh, members on the show uh, last week and in, in our first episode and many others have been DSA members and advocates. And, and you know, this isn't a monolithic uh, or policy uh, across the organization, as with most policies, particularly big tent organizations like DSA. And so there are people inside of DSA who are fighting for a more principled uh, position on foreign policy. And, and so I just want to, I hope those people are listening and I hope we have armed them with some some better arguments because you're absolutely right to point to the movement that's cohered around Bernie Sanders and one of the elements one of the major active elements of that movement has kind of been the 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 people who have flooded into and around DSA in the last year so yeah I think uh, any parting words anybody that you want to you know any diss tracks you want to lay down before we uh, get going I just want to say stop making me Go crazy, please. Just you guys, please. <laughs> if you're listening, just like, please quit it. Like, stop with the moral platitudes and the virtue signaling. Just stop. It's not helping anybody, and you're just making people go crazy like me. You need to feel harder, Rania. You need to feel harder. God, enough. Like, use your brains. Deep down, you know what's going on. They're weaponizing human emotion and affect to produce more of what caused that, you know, suffering in the first place, which is really cynical stuff. And we need to call it out for what it is. Yeah, no, exactly. Also, just weaponizing human rights as a concept. And there's a long history of this. But and you look into the ways in Mm -hmm. which organizations like Human Rights Watch have played into this, etc. I mean, um, and the way it's framed. You know what? Can I I just ask? Can I say something about Human Rights Watch real quick? 
Um, I would love to know the pay differentiation between the Human Rights Watch people that are assigned to Syria and the one person assigned to Yemen. Well, also, uh, <laughs> if you want to get real, do you here, think they have the entire budget like for, to themselves? They have Yemen? a massive budget, and there's always the same like one woman who's yeah. just like screaming about Yemen, but she's just the one woman at Human Rights Watch, and there's like dozens of people on Syria. If you want to get real here for a second, too, uh, Human Rights Watch, which sometimes does good work, also has long-standing ties to the U.S. State Department. So right. does Amnesty International. In fact, Haaretz just recently published a really good piece about how Amnesty International in the 70s in Israel was being run by the Israeli government. Um, so, wow! I didn't see that. But wow. You asked for some final words. I'll just end with this final note, because um, I think it's really... Uh, uh, it. If people who don't know about this, it can really, I think, change the way they see the world. But I would recommend every, everyone to go to Google, everyone who's listening, go to Google and type in quote or something similar, anti-Soviet warrior puts his army on the road to peace. And what will come up... Oh, uh, who do you suppose that is? Uh, so in 19... 19- Hang on, wait, oh, you didn't let us guess first. <laughs> in 1993, Robert Fisk, who's an amazing journalist... Um, uh, one of the few people who's been doing good work on Syria, um, he, uh, a, report, a long-time reporter, Middle East correspondent for The Independent, the British newspaper, published an article in 1993. Uh, it's a big whitewashed article, basically a PR piece for Osama bin Laden. And it talks about how, oh, this, this amazing Arab Mujahideen leader who fought the evil Soviet uh, dictate, dictatorial regime in Afghanistan – uh, was now building a, an amazing uh, large-scale building project in Sudan, and he's doing all these great humanitarian things. I mean, I just think we, we really need to look back at this history. This is not this is not ancient history. This is from wait, the didn't 1990s. Ni- wait, ni- this was in 1993. Didn't 1993? Didn't Al Qaeda? Is that the year Al Qaeda like hit? Um, hit like a U.S. Uh, Navy ship? Was that not 1993? That was that would have been later. That was a 96 yeah. maybe in ni- 98, they, they bombed uh, U.S. Embassy. No, maybe it was 96, mm. and then 96 was the for the first attempt on the World Trade Center. Something happened in 1996 oh, with Al-Qaeda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a little earlier, right? yeah. Anyways. Yeah, yeah but, but in any case, like we should have known better by then, I think, by 93, it's safe to say, either way. Well, I think that, no, but like the point that Ben is making, though, um, I assume, right, about the fact that the people we supported in Syria... Well, and the, I mean, Syria is very different than other conflicts. No conflict is ever the same, but it has a lot of parallels with the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And you had ostensible leftists who were like, all right, in order to defeat, again, the Soviet Union had a lot of issues, like the Syrian government is very repressive. And the Syrian government is not nearly as left-wing as the Soviet Union was. But that aside, all their issues aside, you had people, ostensible leftists in the West, revolution, who fancied themselves revolutionaries, who supported the Mujahideen in the name of fighting the evil Soviet Union, and we they see what happens. Fascists, they yeah. Supported the fascists this led side. to the rise of the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and we see everything today. We saw a sensible leftist who supported the war in Iraq in 2003, which created uh, modern Al Qaeda as a is a large international body. I mean, it existed before that, but it was minor. After the war in Iraq, it became. Uh, an international conflagration that is now in dozens of countries. And then, of course, it gave birth to ISIS, too. So people really just look back at recent history, just 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and see how we were openly allied with Osama bin Laden. (laughs) 
<laughs> these these so these so called moderate rebels uh, in Al Nusra and uh, you know it's Ahura every time Shams. there's a there's like an attack in Europe from someone from ISIS or someone from Al Qaeda, it's like I just want you to imagine yourself or I just want you to imagine a headline that says moderate rebel attacks regime in Sweden because that's <laughs> I mean, exactly that's, that's how, how Syria is framed. I mean, we're fucked. I just, I, I want to, I like to end on a positive note, but I can't cause we're fucked because you look five, 10 years down the road, there is a large cadre of violent reactionary Salafist jihadis. And I don't want to use the word. Jihad. I don't scratch. Forget that. I well, said, because jihadi, you don't want right? to use it because the right wing uses it. But I mean, they call right. themselves. They're, that, they're so. Salafists. Well, yeah. And jihad is also a well, Salafi jihadist is you know, a very particular, and, and whatever. Well, anyway, but Salafis, right? Salafis uh, who are who are trained in ideology, this right wing ideology, fascist ideology, right? This Sunni supremacism. They are learning how to make bombs. Mm-hmm. They're they're they're. Uh, if you read the Time article from 2012, uh, you know they're they're creating. They have an engineering department, <laughs> right? They're creating sophisticated weaponry uh, to kill, maim, and murder. Uh, you know, they're learning how to shoot. They're learning commando tactics. Some of them already have access to heavy weaponry thanks to the U.S. and its allies, namely not just anti-tank weapons. And go on YouTube and look up anti-tank weapons. These things are insane. But not just that. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, people, what people are calling hell cal- cannons. And then even worse than that, there have been some reports of not too many, but access to some man-pads. Man-pads yeah. or anti-aircraft um, weapons, yeah. which can be fit in the trunk of a car or in a golf bag. They're not very big, and they can be used to shoot down planes. Mm-hmm. They're handheld. And so the bottom line is there's this, there's this growing cadre of people who have the ideology and the expertise and the motivation who, what do you think they're going to stay in Syria forever? Oh, and also they're raising, also they're raising a whole generation of like what they call like cubs, like little cu- oh, yeah. like young cubs. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. there's, you can go watch this. I mean, there's, there's like um video Al Jazeera and Vice um have managed to get access uh at some point throughout this war to Idlib or get footage out of it at least uh to Al Qaeda's areas in in East Aleppo as well and they're doing exactly what ISIS does which is indoctrinate children they're raising like a whole young generation I mean you think Al Qaeda is big now Al Qaeda now has its biggest affiliate in history in Syria and that is a direct result of American policy in Syria that would not have happened without American policy in the way it went in Syria and so at some point this is going to blow back and I think it's really a dangerous time for it to blow back too because you know what you know who benefits from terrorist attacks in the west Yes, the far right. Donald Trump, I mean, God, if there's a Donald, if there's an attack under Donald, uh, President Donald Trump, God help us all. I don't even believe in God. Or, ter- or, ter- or Theresa May, or Theresa May, or UKIP in the UK, or Marine Le Pen in mm-hmm. the Front National in France, or these monsters in Hungary, or Geert Wilders, or any of these other people. Narendra Modi in yeah. India, where. I mean, we've already Modi had India. some of these attacks. Sure, Look sure. at what happened. Look at the Paris attacks. That was ISIS. I mean, like ISIS claiming credit for those. And it was also, that was ISIS, actually. Um, in a couple of those cases. This is also what funds the alt-right, the so-called alt-right, which is just fascism. That's what it is. It's the rebranding of fascism. It's not the same as classical fascism. It's different in some ways. But these are neo-fascist mm-hmm. movements. And the thing is, and I talk about this nonstop, but it, we need to stress it as leftists. The, re- the only reason they have ground is because there are these real problems in the world like we're talking about right now. But the left has been completely destroyed. And not only was it destroyed throughout the Cold War, but it is not allowed 
allowed a platform in mainstream society, whereas the alt-right is sometimes – they don't have mainstream platforms, but Breitbart – I mean, they're in the White House They now, do, right? though. They have plat- – yeah. they have massive platforms. They, they're still allowed to go on CNN. Like, CNN yeah. will have a 1,000 alt-right people on before they'll have any one of us on. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they're the yeah. ones, and they're like – the liberals and the conservatives are lying to you. And they're right. Liberals and conservatives are lying to people and they're not acknowledging these basic realities. However, mm-hmm. the left, the actual left, socialists are not allowed to articulate those views in mainstream platforms. So the only thing they do is they feed the alt-right. So it's imperative that we have to we have to fight and defeat a lot of these discourses. I mean, we have to we have to offer a better counter narrative too, like especially with the issue yes. of terrorism. Yeah. So far, the counter narrative on terrorism that comes from the left and liberals and progressives or whatever is is open the borders, let in all the refugees, um, and that's kind of where it stops. And also maybe stop the wars. Like that's like an afterthought. But there's no actual discussion of like terrorism and like the sort of there is a problem right there is we've talked about it in earlier in the show wahhabism and salafism is a serious problem and the spread of it is a serious problem and that needs to be discussed honestly and people need to to need to know that people need to know that the u.s government resurrected al-qaeda in order to weaken the syrian government and so it's like the left refuses to even engage in those things. And because of that, the right fills the entire vacuum around trying to understand why there's terrorism. And the left is just stuck shrugging its shoulders and saying, like, let's all just hug refugees and blame foreign policy grievances every time some asshole, like, blows up a Shia mosque. Well, not only are they doing I mean, it's that, absurd. they're baiting the left and they're saying, oh, you're on the side of the alt-right. No wonder you agree. And then the response yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you're on the side of Saudi Arabia, the U.S. State Department— and Israel, what are you talking about? <laughs> They're like, oh, you agree with with uh, you know, you agree with Richard, like, Richard Spencer, Spencer, and it's uh, like one, yeah. I support Richard Spencer being punched, and I'm glad his <laughs> protest was shut down because they should not be co-opting the alt the anti-war movement the anti-war movement is a progressive revolutionary left-wing movement and we should not allow them to do that but instead all these ostensible leftists these anti-anti-war leftists and these liberals are allowing fascism to co-opt anti-war politics that is incredibly dangerous dangerous yeah yes yes well uh, that's a terrible note to end on but i've got to cut it there i'm sure both of all three of us could talk about this for hours on end uh, but yeah, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Rania Kalik, independent journalist, co-host of Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. If you want to hear more from her, uh, she's always spitting fire on that show with her co-host. Go check it out if you haven't already. I'm sure you have. Uh, ben Norton, journalist, staff reporter for Alternate. Check out his pieces at The Gray Zone. Rania will be publishing at The Gray Zone as well in the coming months. Both of you, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to have you both back to talk about this stuff soon. Great to be on with you. Great discussion. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. And that's our show. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I really had a blast with this week. I learned a lot myself. I love sitting down with Ben Norton and Rania Kalik. They're full of knowledge, and I think we can all learn a lot from their approach. Once again, people, this is not a game. You have to know the history and the politics and the context of the region in order to formulate the right kind of strategy and the right kind of approach to Syria. U.S. out of the Middle East. I think that's a pretty straightforward demand. 
Next week's show, I've got another great one coming for you. I've got two guests joining me on the podcast next week are Christian Parenti and Freddie DeBoer. We're going to be talking about the strategy of no platforming that has recently been used for the likes of uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Charles Murray, among others. It's not so much, I'm not going to sit here and try to convince you not to punch Nazis, because honestly, fuck Nazis. Uh, But really, we want to talk about uh, strategies for for building real power, because as much as uh, punching a Nazi might feel good, it's not not a strategy to build long-term power. And we want to talk to these guys, Christian Parenti and Freddie DeBoer, among the best at breaking down what real political power looks like on the left, without illusions. All right, until next week, I hope you all enjoyed it. I certainly did. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...